Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. Glad you're able to make it. Hopefully, everybody's had a good week. So uh, we'll, we'll start off with prayer, and then um, we're jumping into our discussion on sin today and wrapping that up and then moving on to a different topic uh, next week. So uh, does anyone have any prayer, anything I can pray for? That's okay. Okay, if you do, feel free to share, but we'll go to the Lord in prayer here. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful to be able to come to you on this um, wonderful, nice day, uh, just the refreshing, cool weather. Um, we're reminded of your grace, your faithfulness, your mercy toward us each and every day. So um, we do think of uh, those who have been impacted in other parts of our country or the world by uh, other disasters. And we know that really they are not natural disasters. They are um, part of the fall. And we look forward to the day when there'll be no more of this, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more calamities, uh, no more death, no more um, of anything being affected by sin. So Lord, in the meantime, I pray you will help us press forward, Lord, trusting you, knowing that you are undoing the curse and making all things new. So please give us endurance and patience to the end. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've been in the notes there um, talking about sin and you know, kind of where we went with it was we looked at Adam and Eve a few weeks ago and saw how sin uh, came into the world. And then we've talked about you know, parts about the nature of sin, like what is sin, uh, looked at a definition of it. Um, we've seen some of the results of sin. And then we started, last week we began our discussion on this idea of how we're uh, really affected by sin. We went back to the concept of what we call original sin, which can be a little bit confusing. Uh, I will grant that. But it's, it's dealing with the reality that we are sinners by nature. And, and it's, at, it's answering the question, well, how did that happen? How, how was it that you know, we came into this world already affected by sin, and, and we've looked at some um, answers to that question there. So we'll wrap um, that part of the discussion up today, and then we'll go into um, some other topics, such as total depravity, looking at what that means, um, and then degrees of sin. And just depending on how much time we have, there's some uh, questions and answers that people may have. Um, th those are in your, you know, a lot of this is in your notes. So if we don't necessarily get through all of that, you'll at least have that there to look at. And you can feel free to, to talk with us about at any point in time. So we at least want to provide that there for the discussion. So, uh, and then, like I said, next week we'll be moving on to a new topic there. So when we go back to this idea of original sin, um, so, so there in your notes, just to, just to kind of summarize it, what we mean by that is um, the state in which, the state and condition in which we're born into. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about original sin. We're not referring back to Adam's first sin, um, but uh, we're referring to this guilt that's been imputed to us. So that term imputed, that's a term that the Bible uses. It's a concept, the language of the Bible, and it means it's put on our record. And so uh, last week there were some good questions that were raised that we'd like to try to get more into, such as, is that really fair? I mean, is it fair that something Adam did should, that, that I should be blamed for that? And you know, Levi brought up a, a passage of scripture that said, you know, the children are not to be put to death for their parents' sins. So it kind of raises a question like, well, why did that work in the case of Adam? You know, how is that different? How does this all work together right there? So we'll talk about that. And, and then just, again, going back to that concept of the fairness issue of it. So there is, um, you know, two theories that we were laying out right there in I don't want to get too deep into the weeds with either one of these per se. Um, it's not so much like that we that you have to understand the all the details of how this works, how God uh, accounts us guilty for that sin. It's just more important that we know that we are, you know, because it do, it does raise more questions. How did that? How does that then come to us? And it's and to some degree, it's like I don't know. 
you know, in just some way it works, right? So it's more important that we understand that it's there. That's more important to know than the, all the details about it. So there in your notes, you know, you, you have those two theories. Um, one is the federal headship theory, which Adam stands as the head of the human race. He represents us. And the other theory is Adam serves as a natural head of the human race. So uh, in both of those theories, um, I think there's a lot of similarity between the two, a lot of agreement with the two. So the federal headship theory doesn't deny what the, um, the seminal theory is teaching, that Adam is you know, the biological head. It's not denying that. It's just saying that in some ways too, Adam also stands as a representative. And so there's just a, a, lot of, a lot of common agreement with both of those. So I don't wanna get into you know, the weeds of necessarily of trying to go down and work out all the details. I mean, that's fun to have, but we just don't have the time for that. So um, I did wanna just explain a few more things that'll help us as we think through the, the answer, or, you know, some of these questions of fairness. So when we get to, you know, the, this idea of Adam being as head of the human race, um, it, it does raise the question, why aren't Adam's descendants held responsible for other sins, for like Adam's later sins? Why are they only held responsible for Adam's first sin? You know, he, he's not held responsible for all the sins of the people that followed after him then. So I think it's important to remember that um, Adam didn't sin as a private individual, but, his, but again, he represents mankind, and his sin, um, as he's the representative of humanity right there, he, he is held responsible for that. So, you know, this morning in Joshua, uh, if you look ahead, and I'm assuming, you know, Scott will probably get to it next week, but the next week is Achan's sin. And Achan, um, you know, he sins as an individual, but if you look at that, Israel is held responsible for that sin, right? And in some ways, it's a little bit similar. Like, how could they, like, is that fair? Because they weren't the ones that went into the tent and stole the stuff and did, did all those things. But there's, there's still a responsibility that still affects them. You know, and, and I'm not saying it's a perfect analogy, but I'm saying, you know, we can, we can see the connection right there. We can see how that works. Um, so there's this, uh, there's this representation element that's important right there. So, sin, uh, so death, if you remember, death is the penalty for sin. Um, so we see with, it wasn't only... Adam who eventually died. It wasn't only Adam who began, began to grow older, who had this um, disconnect in his relationship with God and others. It was also everyone else who followed him, Eve and his children and their children and so on. So that, that would imply that Adam's guilt would rest upon the entire human race. So in one sense, we were one with Adam and, you know, legally, and in a sense, we broke this stipulation and covenant with God, and, and therefore we were therefore subject to breaking the covenant curses as well. So again, um, it raises the, those objections maybe. How can God do this? It maybe just doesn't seem fair right there. So I think that, that Scripture does teach this. Um, children are affected by the conduct of their parents. So in Exodus 25, if I could have somebody read that for us, please. Yep, chapter 20, verse 5. Oh, chapter 20. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Not quite. We'll go one verse. Okay. 
You shall not bow down to bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So there. There is this connection. Um, children receive good or bad uh, or suffering according to the conduct of their parents. So we have to look at how that fits in. Um, but that's not... So there's, the, there's a difference between being affected by the suffering and, and suffering. That's not always the same as being punished for the sin of another. So if we look at... If someone could read Ezekiel then, chapter 18, verses 1 through 4... So we, so we, there we see, you know, there's this suffering element. Uh, what, what happens to, you know, parents' responsibility or parents' actions, they, they, it does impact other generations. Uh, but we also have to take into balance Ezekiel 18, verses 1 to 4. So we're answering your uh, question from last week. <laughs> yeah. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Thank you. So you see right there, I mean, what we have there is the Lord is um, saying there's an individual responsibility in this. They were going around making excuses for the things that have happened and saying, well, because my parents did this, you know, that's now I'm just a victim in this. And the Lord is saying, no, you're responsible for your own sins. So you can see... You know, we still are impacted by things that other people do. Um, if, you know, our parents sin or other people in our life sin, there's a suffering element that, that affects us, right? But as far as our guilt, we're responsible for our sins, not for theirs. So as we think about Adam then, what do we do, what do, we do in the case of Adam? Because it would seem like then... That, okay, well, if what you're saying is true, then let's be consistent with that. So whatever Adam did, you know, shouldn't really affect us. Maybe the suffering aspect of it, but not the sin. So there we would say um, that there's a special relationship with Adam and his natural descendants. Okay, so, so Paul has in mind this special legal relationship with Adam and his descendants that, that isn't true in those other examples that we've looked at. Um, we see that in Romans chapter five. Uh, some, you know, many many believe that this legal relationship was established by God's covenant. Uh, it's referred to as this covenant with Adam. Some call it a covenant of works. Some, not all, hold to that though. But regardless of that, um, Adam stood in a very special, unique place that doesn't happen, you know, in, in the course of our lives or. Um, you know, just other generations. Does that make sense? So the way that Paul is presenting Adam is that he's in a unique place as representative of the human race. That's not true in the case of, say like you, Michael, say like if you sinned, you know, the consequence, the, the, I might be affected by the suffering, an aspect of that, but I'm not responsible for that. But you're not in a special place as head of the human race. You're just another person. Uh, so God doesn't impute sin to a person just because one of his ancestors, ancestors sinned. That's really what we're trying to emphasize right here. So just because um, Adam sinned uh, doesn't automatically mean that God is putting this guilt on everybody else. Just because you sin doesn't mean that your guilt is being put on other people, okay? It, it doesn't work like that. The, the important thing is Adam stands in a special relationship to mankind. 
So even though the Genesis account seems to indicate that Eve was the first human to sin, it was Adam's transgression that brought sin, condemnation, and death to the whole race. We saw that there in Romans 5, 12 to 19, where Paul singles out Adam there. So this doesn't, um, so back to your question from last time. Uh, the imputation, like God putting the guilt of Adam's sin on our account, doesn't contradict the principle that the soul that, that sins shall die. Because in, in God's economy, um, all sinned when Adam sinned. So does that clarify things? That as Adam, because Adam was in a special relationship to the human race, therefore God could put his guilt on our account that's different than when like you or I or other people in the past have sinned. God, God doesn't do that in the same way. Why? Because we're not in that unique place that Adam was in. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's definitely a good, unique answer for the definitely a unique answer for a answer like this I've ever heard. So. Okay. Yeah. Again, this, this um, conversation, it is pretty challenging, right? And there's a lot of depth that we can go into it. So we're trying to stay on the surface of it and not make the whole class about <laughs> this one particular topic. So I'm trying to resist the urge to, to go too deep and get everybody lost in the weeds right there. But just a few other points. Um, if somebody would still say, that still doesn't seem fair. You know, it still doesn't seem fair that God, like I wasn't there in the garden, God putting this, make, God accounting me guilty for what he did. So I, I think we could respond in a couple other ways. One, it's not for us to dictate to the Creator what is just and what is unjust. Who are we to argue with God? That's really Paul's answer in a lot of things. He's like, shall the uh, creature say to the Creator, why did you make me like this? You know, shall, will the potter say to the clay, or will the clay say to the potter, what have you done? And, and that's a rhetorical question. It's like, well, of course not. So in some senses, if this is like, it's not up to us to tell God what's fair and what's not fair. Again, uh, Adam was the natural root of the human race for all humanity, even Eve sprang from him. So this helps us to see the reasonableness of God entering into a covenant with Adam as the representative of his family. So again, Adam is in a very unique situation. Uh, third, God provided mankind with an excellent representative. So Adam, remember, he was created fully good. He was sinless in every way. Uh, he was able to keep God's law. He was tested only with the easiest of prohibitions in a place of happiness and plenty. Doesn't that show God's goodness to us? So God didn't he didn't create Adam with these distortions or these tendencies to to want to go off track. He didn't put Adam in this really hard environment where he's faced with all this temptation and it's like, oh man, there's I just can't endure this. There's no way to go with this. Like this is such a hard place for me to be in. Right, right? If God did that, it may raise more questions, but God didn't do that. I mean, he's in a he's in the best environment we could imagine. He's got one command, don't eat from this tree. So, I mean, is not God very good in all of that? Of course He is. And then, uh, as it was brought out last time by some of you, if it's not just or if it's not right for God to impute, again, that's put on our account, um, Adam's sin to those Adam represented, then it would not be just for God to put Christ's righteousness on the account of those he represented. You can't have it both ways. If it's not right with Adam, it's not right with Christ. So this is precisely the parallel that Paul makes in Romans chapter 5. Okay, I'll wrap it up with that unless there's any other questions maybe related to this discussion of original sin. Okay, so let's go then into total depravity, total depravity. Now, on the surface, um, that can seem like a, when you hear those two words, you might be thinking, oh, that sounds like a fun conversation to talk about. <laughs> Very dark and twisted. I didn't really come to this class today to hear about that. Like, it's sunny outside, you know. Let's talk about something bright and encouraging. So, before you uh, maybe go too far with that, let's, 
explain, let's talk about what it is, all right? And then um, look at the, look at what, it's, what it is and what it isn't. Um, so there in your notes you have that, but, but let's just uh, start with the definition first, and then we'll go into the scripture with it. Um, so there in your definition, um, total depravity should first be defined negatively. It does not mean that depraved people cannot or do not perform actions that are good in either man or God's sight. So, okay, what we're not, what we're, what we are not saying is that depraved people um, can't do any actions that would be in some way considered good. It also uh, doesn't mean that fallen man has no conscience which judges either good or evil for him. So last week, uh, Tyson talked about the conscience, and God gave uh, all of us that, uh, gave, he gave us a conscience, right? It's one of the, the proofs about him. So we have um, creation, we look, we look out and we can see the stars and the sky, and, and that shows that God exists. And also he's put within all of us this conscience. So nobody can say, I just didn't have enough reason to believe in God. You know, if God would have revealed himself more clearly, I would have, re- I would have believed. Uh, the argument is, no, we all have enough evidence to believe in God. And, and it also doesn't mean that people indulge in every form of sin or in any sin to the greatest extent possible. So when you hear this word total depravity, you know, we could kind of sum it up like this. What it doesn't mean is that we're all like Hitler. We're all doing these very wicked, horrible atrocities. Uh, That's not what it means. So depravity means that because of sin's corruption, there's nothing man can do to, to merit saving favor with God. Okay, so sin has corrupted us thoroughly. Every part of our faculty, our mind, our emotions, our will, our, our thoughts, our actions, our words, all of that has been corrupted by sin. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about total depravity right there. It doesn't mean as, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. It means that we have been affected by sin in every way. So, so people can be very good, moral, upstanding citizens. You know, they can um, help the old lady across the street. They can buy groceries for their neighbor. They can uh, volunteer at the animal shelter. They can do all of those things. And, and there's a good, like uh, uh, because of God's common grace, there's a lot of good they can do in those actions. But every part of them has still been affected and corrupted by sin. It, again, we're not saying that they're these Hitlers just you know, doing all these wicked things um, on that level, but they have been affected by sin. So we're, um, we're conceived in sin, um, we're dead in sin, we're the slaves of sin, and apart from the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, we're not willing or able to return to God or to correct our nature or to even want that correction of it. So does that make sense when you hear the the word total depravity? Does that give a little bit more understanding? Now, we'll walk through some more specifics of this from Scripture, but that's kind of a general picture of it. And and so what we're trying to do by presenting this, we're showing you why it's important, why we need a Savior, okay? Because if we're not very affected by sin, then we really don't need much of a Savior. We we maybe need a life coach. We maybe need, um, you know, like a mentor or a a cheerleader or something, you know, to kind of encourage us along. But if we're really this impacted by sin, then the only solution for us is a Savior. And I believe that, again, this is very important because we can go through life um, with just kind of a low view of sin. Oh, yeah, I do some wrong things. I do some bad things here. But but overall, it's it's pretty good. I kind of got it. And, And that gets us into a lot of trouble. We just don't see the depth of our sin, and then in, in return, we don't see the need for our grace, like we sh- for God's grace, like we should. Um, so, one of the areas that I want to start with is the depravity of the heart. We'll look at some scripture proofs for this, but but talking about the depravity of the heart. So, uh, I know Tyson gave you a, a definition of the heart in terms of biblical terms. Does anybody re- remember what that is when the Bible uses this term heart? What's that referring to? Uh, 
Excellent. Yep. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we use that term. I mean, it gets thrown out there a lot in today's culture. He plays with a lot of heart. Um, I give my heart to you, you know, all this stuff like this. But, but biblically, it's, it's the, the most common word for our inner self. So it encompasses a lot, of, a lot of things, you know, soul, spirit, thoughts, emotions, all at will, desires, all of those are encompassed by this word, the heart. So primarily, it's not referring to that beating physical organ that's pumping blood that we all have. It's referring to our inner self, the real you. Yep. And so the stronghold of reigning sin is, is in the heart. Um, Genesis 6-5 right there, you, you have that in your notes, right? If we take a look at that in Jeremiah 17, 9. So then uh, Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that was not only true um, for that particular generation, but, but that's true today as well. So here he's connecting thoughts and the heart. He's connecting those two together. But he's talking about how evil flows from that. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 is a very um, well-known passage, I'm sure, and very important too. You know, you, you hear people say that all the time. Just follow your heart. <laughs> what do you want to do in life? Just follow your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 gives us a great reason why we shouldn't do that. <laughs> The heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, to be fair with this passage, um, I do think that in a lot of our discussion today, this gets used and connected with Christians. You know, people will even talk about that for us as Christians. So I think we have to be careful theologically. This is speaking of, I mean, it is true that it is true, but it's primarily referring here to unbelievers. So when we're saved, we've been given new hearts. So it's not quite accurate to say that our hearts are so twisted and sick and sinful and, and depraved. Like, we still have to account for God's change in our life. Now, we're, we're new. We're not as new as we'll one day be. But it's not fair to say that we're exactly like an unbeliever here with the same kind of heart. Otherwise, that would discount the work that the Lord has done. So that's that's definitely true. This is definitely true of a person who doesn't know the Lord. Now, still, it's still true that sin originates in the heart. It's still true that there's remaining sin in our hearts that the Lord has to deal with. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we can make it sound like we're just like an unbeliever. So we have to talk about that carefully. So just to add to your point there about the Genesis 6-5, um, you know, you said it wasn't just that context where the intention of everyone's heart was evil continually, because in Genesis 8, after the flood wiped everything out, God said uh, to Noah, he says, uh, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So mm -hmm. because of original sin, it just continued to be perpetuated that way. Yeah, good. Thank you for bringing that out. Yep. Yeah, that's good. So that, that goes, it helps us understand, you know, that saying, um, we don't sin, or we aren't sinners because we sin, rather we sin because we are sinners. So it it's, goes back to the element that because of our corrupt nature, that's why we sin. We don't become sinners just because we sin. It's flowing from that nature. So our heart is depraved. And we could look at places uh, such as in Matthew um, 12, uh, 34 and 35. We could look at Matthew 15. Um, there's a couple places where Jesus talks about the heart, and, and he's talking about from that come all of these things, like come uh, adulteries, uh, fornication, you know, all of these things, evil words are flowing from the heart. So when our heart is, you know, when our inner self is impacted and affected by sin, well, it makes sense that that's going to flow into the rest of everything else we do, right? So this is why Christianity offers something that the world can't offer. Um, the world can only offer like strategies and things that would change the behavior. They can't give us anything that would actually change the heart. That's why we need a Savior. 
right? If our hearts weren't affected by it, then again, we don't need much of a savior. We just need some tips, some tricks, some 12 steps, some stuff like that. But because the Bible says, no, it's our heart that have been, has been uh, affected, then we really need a savior for that. Secondly, um, our entire life is depraved. So depravity, this effect of sin, contaminates our whole life. Um, any, could someone look up Job 14.4, please? Thank you. Yeah, so, so none of us on our own can clean up our lives. Like, we can't, uh, we can't change the depravity of ourselves, the corruption of sin on our own. And so th the need is for a Savior. Um, sin affects, uh, it corrupts our speech, our actions, our relationships, our purpose, and mindset. And again, there's a lot of uh, scriptural passages that we can look at. Uh, Romans 3, 10 to 18 is a very important one right here. So there uh, Paul says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And I love how he, he puts some of these things in here. And, and so there might be somebody who's thinking, Well, that's true, but I'm the exception. And then he's like, No, not one. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Again, that phrase right there, that just in case anybody was thinking different, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So desires uh, have become evil lusts, according to James 4, verses 1 to 4. Even the conscience is defiled, Titus 1, 15. Mankind is in the flesh. The, it's the fallen state of man apart from God's spirit, Romans uh, 7, 5 through 7, 6. And from this inherent corruption arise all actual sins that we, we commit, for they are the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. So our, our entire lives are depraved. And, and because there's this corruption in our entire life, uh, a lot of, you know, all of our actual sins flow from that. So... There's, again, another, uh, um, a lot of other scriptures right there that in your, if you want in your time, you can look those up that speak to that, that the entirety of our life has been uh, affected by sin. So Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So theologians um, speak of our total inability to do what's good until God saves us through Christ. So in terms of God's eyes, we can't do what's good in terms of God's eyes uh, apart from Jesus saving us. So the you know, Scripture makes it clear that a sinner is not able to serve God apart from the work of uh, the Spirit in their life. So here's some different areas that the Bible talks about unregenerated people who don't have God's spirit, what they can't do unless God works in their life. So they're unable to speak what God counts as good. So Matthew 12, 34, I mentioned that earlier, and 37, says this, uh, Jesus says, O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. By the words you shall be condemned. So again, from a human level, there is a sense in which um, unsaved people can speak things that are good, right? I get that. But from God's perspective, they, they're never able to, to satisfy Him, not apart from His Spirit at work in their life to, to give them a new heart. Unbelievers um, are unable to obey God's law and to please God. So Romans 8, 7-8 
says the carnal mind or the natural mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they are so then they that are in the flesh, get this, cannot please God. So ultimately, you know, in this ultimate sense of pleasing God, you can't do that apart from God's spirit giving you a new heart, new desires and working in you. There's a sense, right, in which in God's common grace, unbelievers can function and do, do things that are good, but I call that maybe more of a little g, little good, than, than a big good. Because in God's eyes, they're still rebellious. They're still disobedient. You know, so in that sense, they, they still cannot please Him. They're unable to be saved. Uh, Matthew 19, verses 25 to 26 says, When the disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So on our own, we're unable to be saved. If we could be saved on our own, then again, that simply reduces God's grace to this kind of like the afterburners on a race car. You know, you, you, you need it for a little bit of a boost, but you don't really need a Savior we're unable to spiritually perceive or enter into God's kingdom apart from the work of the Spirit in our life. So John 3, 3 and verse 5 says, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the unregenerate person, the unsaved person, is unable to listen to God's word with an open mind. John 8, 43, why do you not understand my speech? Because you cannot hear my word. You can look back to Jeremiah 6, 10 for that as well. So apart from God's spirit working in us, working in someone, they really can't listen to God's word with an open mind. There's like this barrier that's there. They're unable to receive truth revealed by God's spirit. So can someone read uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, please? I can do that. 2.14. Thank you. 2.14, yep. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Uh, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Gabe, any thoughts on what he means there? It's like, it's like he has blinders on. Like He's not going to be able to see it if he's blind. Yeah. Yep. Very good. All the disciples and the <laughs> crowds you know, following Jesus when he would tell a parable, and they were mm -hmm. not able to discern the truth and the meaning behind them. They were hidden. The meaning was hidden from them. Mm -hmm. And it even the disciples, the inner 12, it took Jesus to reveal the meaning to them. So it's yeah. apart from God's help mm -hmm. in illuminating mm -hmm. understanding. Yep. Here's a question for you all. Uh, can an unbeliever write a commentary on the Bible? Yes. Why? Well, doesn't, doesn't this verse say they can't? Commentary? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> People have freedom of speech. We just need to have discernment on what we write. Uh -huh. No Holy Spirit to put God's life into those words. Yes. Yep. There's there's a story. I mean, it's, it's a true story. I don't remember who exactly it is, but this uh, woman was married to an, an unsaved husband, and he wrote a commentary. I can't remember what book of the Bible it was. And it was like, he's very intelligent, very sharp. So, I mean, he can, he can organize things. I mean, he can make wonderful sentences and there's a lot you can do, you know, in terms of like understanding what words say and mean and, and putting this all together, like the themes and, and those kind of things. Right. And she, she was not definitely not on his level when it came to that, but she made something to the comment about him, you know, some kind of comment or, 
in the conversation to him, it was like, well, yes, you can do that, but they mean those words mean nothing to you. They don't change your life in, to any degree. Like the Lord was working in her life, and so I mean, he could write these wonderful things on paper, but it was just all words. So yeah, we don't want to we don't want to make it sound like you know an unbeliever can't make logical sentences or can't write anything or we don't want to make it sound like that because that's not true that's part of god's common grace but just like you've mentioned even if they could in a commentary it would still be lacking the work of god's spirit in their life and it would just be words on that page so it is something you know as you maybe utilize um bible resources or books or things like that uh just always always keep that in mind that apart from God's spirit working in the life of us and in that person, I mean, it can say great things, but it's still lacking. Bart Ehrman's a, Bart Ehrman's a New Testament scholar, and he used to be a pastor, um, but he, he, know, he probably knows the New Testament better than I do. Um, but yeah, he's not a believer. Mm-hmm. He hates God and hates God's word, but yet he devotes his life <laughs> to studying the Bible and then lectures about why you can't trust the Bible. <laughs> so it's just a, a great irony and a, a sad thing. Mm-hmm. You know? But uh, yeah, very smart man. Yeah, very smart man. That's but, uh, yeah, very far from the kingdom. Mm-hmm. It's a good example. Yeah, and his uh, his story is actually interesting because what started him off on that um, trajectory was. In a class he had for seminary, or it was Bible college, he uh, was writing on, there's a passage in Mark which references the high priest. Well, the problem is, if you look back to the Old Testament account of in David's time, it, use, it uses a different name for that high priest. And so Bart was trying to reconcile, why does the New Testament writer Mark use this name for the high priest? But when you look back in the Old Testament, that's not who was identified as a high priest. You know, so one of the principles that we believe with Scripture is it never contradicts itself. So if there's something like that that would seemingly contradict itself, we, we work to reconcile that, figure out how those two things work together. So Bart turns in this paper, and his paper, his professor gives him back, gives him it back with these comments, just one simple comment, what if Mark was wrong? And that started the trajectory of, oh, okay, maybe he was wrong. And once you open the door to that, now you don't have to reconcile anything, right? Now you've allowed the possibility of error to creep in. And it's always, it always will end up in a downhill trajectory. It never works out for good. It will always end up in a, a downhill trajectory. So just, just that encouragement when you do run into places of Scripture like that, just because they may seem to contradict doesn't mean they actually do contradict. And that's where we have to really press in and figure out you know, what's going on in those. Um, just a couple more things here. So unbelievers, um, you know, apart from the work of Christ, were unable to believe in Christ for salvation. So John 12, 39 to 40 says, Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, and be converted, and that I should heal them. We're unable to confess from the heart that Jesus is Lord apart from the work of um, God. And I don't mean like a, I don't mean just like a, uh, anybody can confess it. I'm talking about from the heart. So a genuine saving belief that Jesus is Lord. So 1 Corinthians 12:3 says, "No man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit." And then finally, um, again, apart from the work of Christ regenerating us, making us alive, we're unable to receive the Holy Spirit. So John 14, 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, nor knoweth him not, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And then uh, unable to bear good fruit that glorifies that glorifies God. So John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So all that to say, you know, when it comes to total depravity, again, we're not saying that people are as bad as they could possibly be. Uh, there's that saying that says, um, I don't know if it was Newton, he may have been the one that said it, or, or one of those guys, but apart from the grace of God, there go I. 
So it's easy for us to look at you know, people in prison or wherever the case is and think, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that. And we have to resist that because it's apart from the grace of God, there go we. So total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. It just means that every part of us, every faculty about us has been impacted by sin. Because of that, we need a savior. And so as God brings salvation, one of the things he does is he clears things up. He, he, helps, he helps us. So every part of us that has been affected by sin, he's bringing clarity, he's bringing a newness into that. Not as new as will one day be. You think about your thinking. And have you ever struggled with sinful thoughts still? Your desires, anybody still have bad desires? Yeah, your emotions, anytime that anyone have those go off track sometimes? Uh-huh. So there's this um, element of remaining sin in our life, but there is this newness as well. So that brings us to the, um, our, you know, kind of the last one for today, I think, is uh, degrees of sin. Are there different degrees of sin? So maybe before we, um, you know, before I dive into that, what are your thoughts? Do you think there's different degrees of sin, or do you think that all sin is sin and, it's, and everything's on the same level? talk about this third and fourth grade one where it's like, well, I've got sin, but at least I don't have that person's sin. <laughs> you know? I mean, you wouldn't punish every sin equally. If somebody murders, you'd probably throw them in prison for a longer time than somebody stole like a dollar bill from a kid. Mm -hmm. It's not the same equivalents of uh, harm or mm -hmm. moral transgression. Mm -hmm. You see God responding differently. Mm -hmm. If somebody kills someone on accident, they get this punishment. But if they do it on purpose, they get a different one. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. So, yeah, you, you're, you're thinking right here. So in a world of sin, we have to discern the seriousness of various sins so we can deal with them wisely without either overreacting or underreacting, whether it's in our personal walk with Jesus or whether it's in, you know, accountability for other people or whether it's in the government. Um, so one, you know, in one sense, that question is a little bit of a trick question, or in other words, it's almost, you know, in one sense, it's almost um, a yes and a no. So if we think about it, sometimes people can get off track because when they look at it, um, you know, it's like all sin is sin, and and that is true, right? All sin is serious in God's sight. So any sin, whether it's a, a sin of our thought or anything, puts us in a place of condemnation where we are deserving of hell. And, and so that, on that level, that is true. But on another level, there are degrees of sin. And just like you have brought out, you know, God responds differently. We respond differently. So it's, it's both of those things. Um, so let's look at some places that talk about this, just different degrees of sin. So Paul says, you know, talking about in one sense, all sin um, is punishable by death, Romans 6.23. That is true. So all sin is a violation of God's law, regardless of what, what it was, even if it was a, quote, minor sin or a, quote, major sin. It's the wages of sin is death. The violation of any command is an offense against God, James 2.10-11. So the law pronounces its curse on anyone who doesn't abide in keeping everything commanded, whether that was something small in it or something big in it, Galatians 3.10. Jesus taught that words spoken in anger make a person liable to the fires of hell, Matthew 5.22. But it would be an error as well to make all sins of the same weight. So the Lord uh, showed Ezekiel, for example, some sins of the people, but he said that he would see greater abominations. That's in Ezekiel 8, uh, yeah, chapter 8 in a few places. So he talks about, you know, greater abominations. One nation can be more corrupt than, than others. That's in uh, Ezekiel as well, chapter 16. One generation of sinners can be worse than a previous generation. That's in Jeremiah. 7.26 and 16.12. 
Christ said that the person who handed him over to Pilate had committed a greater sin than Pilate. John 19.11 uh, Jesus compared some sins to a speck, but others to a log. Matthew 7 It's possible for wicked to grow worse and worse in the sins they commit. 2 Timothy 3.13 so you think about, you know, there's degrees of sin that's also evidenced in degrees of punishment. So if you have your Bibles, let's uh, take a look at Luke 12, for example, uh, verses 47 and 48. Luke 12, um, if I could get someone to read, uh, 47 and 48, please. Okay, good. So what do you see from that passage right there? What's Jesus saying? Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. Good. So all, all of us here in this room, like it or not, are going to be held to a greater standard. Uh, there's a greater weight placed upon all of us than there is with somebody, say, in like the jungles of the Amazon who has never heard the gospel. They're still responsible, but there's a lesser responsibility on them and a lesser punishment on them than somebody who's been in a church, who knows the word, you know, all these kinds of things. So it, it does put a, a lot higher responsibility on us and an importance to, you know, act on this. So Jesus... Um, warned cities that refused the gospel that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for them. If you kind of think about that, like God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone from heaven for their sin. That's a pretty strong judgment, right? But Jesus says it's actually going to be better. It'll actually be easier on them than it will be for these cities in which he was ministering in, who saw those miracles, who saw him there and heard his teachings and refused him. So, I mean, if, if it's worse than that, it's going to be pretty bad. Uh, so, that would raise the question, you know, what makes some sins more heinous or, or worse than others? You know, how, how, how could we think through this? You know, how, how would we know, like, if there, what kind of degrees of sin are we talking about here? You know, what, can you be more specific on what this looks like? So um, this comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, where they've really uh, sought to answer this question. So that's what I'm pulling this from. But how they've framed it is, one is thinking about the person of the sinner, so, for example, the privileges that we that that person has. So, someone who knows God's word, or a position from which to teach and influence others, like James three one, for example, um, we should be we should fear to be a stumbling block to others who are swayed by our example. Matthew eighteen six and seven. So, depending on our where we're at, the responsibilities God has entrusted us with, the position that we have. That, that's more responsibility, and, and that's a worse sin. Another consideration is the person against whom one sins. So sins are more heinous when committed in direct contempt against God himself. So if you directly sin against God, that's really, really bad, you know, comparatively to um, perhaps a, another person here. 
or against a person to whom God has given authority, Proverbs 30, 17. Likewise, sins of injustice against the weak and the vulnerable are great in God's sight, Amos 5, 11 to 12. And they especially call down God's wrath upon oppressors, Exodus 22, 21 to 24. So it's, it's one thing, you know, if I like go out to Gabe in the parking lot after church and punch him in the face, that's, that's bad, right? And so, but it'd be another thing if I like um, go to somebody's kid and shove them down, right? I mean, they're both bad, right? But in, but in one, you can see like, I mean, you can see different degrees to this. I mean, it'd be one thing, you know, if, if him and I were just having a disagreement and I lost my temper and I did and I smacked him. It's another thing if it's like, you know, you got this kid there who maybe is just like uh, running all over the place and, you know, you do something like that, right? So it makes sense to us. Like God, God really takes it seriously when we sin against uh, the weak and vulnerable. Another consideration is the extent of sin's actions. So sin's in the heart versus when it turns, uh, you know, when it, when it moves outward into, into physical actions. So we saw Cain's anger, which started in his heart, but then it came out in his murder uh, against other people. So, you know, here at Newcastle, when it comes to sins of a person's heart, we're very cautious about... Um, we're not going to discipline somebody. We're not going to, uh, you know, we're going to try to help them see those things, but, but it's different, right? We, we're very cautious with that versus the outward sins of a person. So, you know, we're, we're not just going to go up to somebody and like, hey, I think you're, Troy, I think you're proud there. Let's, let's talk about that. You know, it, we'd have to be a lot of, there, there'd be a lot of humility and, and caution in that. Now, if we were seeing like a lot of actions associated with that, what we'd try to focus on would be those actions right there, right? Because when you get into sins of the heart, you just have to be careful with there because we're not God. We can't see that perfectly. So as sin works its way outward, it's bad in our hearts, yes, but it's it's greater when it um, turns into like physical acts. So not to pick on Gabe, but just pretend like I had a bad thought about Gabe. Like he won't buy me a tenderloin anytime. <laughs> so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna get back at him. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna make him a hamburger with pickles. <laughs> now, if I just had that thought in my head, it's like that's that's bad. You know, I shouldn't be thinking about that about my brother. But if I would like say, you know, if I would like try to do something like invite him out to lunch and then hey, look over there, and then I take his tenderloin and put a hamburger with pickles on it. Like, that becomes worse, right? Because I've really, <laughs> really acted it out. I know, and if I ever did that, like, you should be, <laughs> you should be very concerned about me. <laughs> uh. Too many people do not have the context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so there's... All this to say, you know, to, to wrap this up, there's a number of things that we could look at in, when, it tum, when it comes to degrees of sin. As with anything, I will be glad to send you the full notes of everything I've talked about today that are included in what you have. So just send me an email and I'll put all that in there. Um, but uh, God, you know, God punishes sin. That was really the final point, what I wanted to look at today. God, God punishes sin um, through judgments on the soul. Um, he, he gives up people. He turns them over. Uh, God punishes people through judgments on the body. Um, sometimes, sometimes, hear me very carefully on this. This is not every case, so you have to be very, very careful with this. But sometimes punishment comes through judgments on our body, whether sin or sickness. And there's examples of that in Scripture. Um God also punishes uh, our conscience. He judges us through our conscience. So, you know, this, this binding of the conscience, this searing of the conscience can be part of God's judgment. God judges through uh, civil government. And then finally, the eternal judgment of sin's punishment, which would be the eternal damnation of sinners. So... That uh, wraps up um, our discussion, at least in this class, on sin. 
um, if you have any further questions or comments or thoughts with that, you know, we'll save time because we've got plenty of weeks in this class. So you can write them down. You can ask them at, at any point in time. But next week, we'll be moving on uh, to um, a different topic there. So thank you, uh, everybody. We've enjoyed having you today and uh, look forward to seeing you, Lord willing, next week. Thank you.